Pharrell, Beyoncé, Timberlake, Dr. Dre and many others are the epitome of creativity, uniqueness and inventiveness. What can we learn from them? What music can teach us about innovation? How should business managers think about their role in leading creativity? All of these questions are the topic of today's show. Panos Panay and Michael Hendricks, the co-author of Two Beats Ahead, What Musical Minds Teach Us About Innovation, will answer these questions and many more. So let's start. We are being told to choose between the left and right brain, between studying art and engineering, between creative and analytical thinking. Our society tells us that art and business are not connected. But what if society is wrong? What if it misleading us? The good news is that understanding what art is can bring us to a new revelation. Art does matter in innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. And with the help of this podcast and its guests, you as well will learn that art is not an object. Art is a mindset. You are listening to The Artian Podcast with me, Nir Hindi. Hey, podcast listeners. Thanks for coming back. Music. just like other art forms, crosses cultures, geographies, ages, and gender. So much so that studies show a level of universality in the way that music conveys emotions. Listening to music that we experience as pleasing activates brain areas involved in reward and other pleasant experiences. So the question is, how are these creators doing so? I'm glad to have on this show two great advocates of the connection between music and And innovation. I enjoyed meeting them both a few years back in Barcelona when large events actually took place. Panos Panay is a Cyprus-born entrepreneur and executive. He is the founder of the Berkeley Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship, among other projects. Michael Hendricks, partner and global director of design at IDEO, is also a musician that writes and performs music as R.M. Hendricks. You will hear his music through the episode. Hey, Panos. Hey, Michael. Welcome to the Artian Podcast. Thanks. Thank you, Nir. Excited to be here. So we have exciting topics today of music innovation, some of the leading figures in music in the world. But before we dive into the music and innovation, I'm interested to understand, how did you two meet? Panos and I met at a conference, a business conference, actually, about how creativity was the engine for success in Massachusetts, where we are. And we both, <laughs> not really wanting to go, to be honest, <laughs> I'll let Panos tell his start of the story, but <laughs> I did my spiel on stage and then I was getting ready to walk out and I saw a guy from Berkeley was on stage talking about entrepreneurship and I thought, you know, I've been wanting to bring my design and music career together and I know something about entrepreneurship, so I'm going to stick around and listen to this guy. Great. And yo, Panos, <laughs> what did you think? I don't know near if you've spent any time in Boston, but uh, it's a beautiful city with a horrible climate. <laughs> so it, it, was one of the, it was one of those days that, you know, if there was a, a tourism uh, bureau promoting the worst climate day of the year, I think that, would have been the, that day would have been a poster child. So it was one of those things where, as Michael just said, you're like, oh, I don't really want to be there. And I went and I did this panel, which was actually quite fascinating and fun, talking about creativity and entrepreneurship. And then I saw Michael, I guess what I would say, backstage, if there was such a thing uh, in the venue that we were at, and he introduced himself and said he was from IDEO. And, you know, I've been an IDEO uh, fan slash groupie for a while. So uh, the minute he said that, I just got really excited. And I thought, 
Well, you know, he kind of looked the role of, of an ideor. We also seem to have had this almost intuitive connection of just finishing each other's sentences. And that instant feeling that we had, or at least I had, when I met Michael just hasn't really gone away, even after all, all these years. It's amazing how your instincts, and it's something we talk about in the book, often if you're in, in tune with them, really do speak very loudly. Before we actually dive deep into the book, maybe you tell us, Panos, what exactly you are doing in your day-to-day. So my role is Senior Vice President for Global Strategy and Innovation at Berklee College of Music, which is uh, the world's largest contemporary music, dance, theater, and I'll say a sonic technology school that is out there. Honestly, I think I have one of the most fun jobs on the planet. I'm responsible for developing the institutional, uh, overall institutional strategy. I oversee our presence and global footprint outside of the main Boston campus. So this includes our campus in Valencia, Spain, where we have several master's programs, our campus in New York City, where we took over a legendary recording studio called Power Station and have kept it as both a commercial studio as well as a remodeled educational facility. I oversee our campus in Abu Dhabi, uh, which is another part of of the world where the work that Michael and I have uh, intersects. That is our newest uh, campus that we opened uh, about a year ago. And I also oversee our expansion in China, as well as new (laughs) sectors such as UK through 12. I am responsible for coordinating the the sort of incorporation of new technologies within the the educational uh, sphere of the college. In some ways, I'm a kid in a candy shop, or as a musician, I'm a kid in a guitar shop. (laughs) Uh, There's all these cool colors and all these cool flavors, and you can't wait to try them all. Michael, we already know kind of inside that you are from IDEO. What exactly do you do? Well, I'm a partner. I'm the global design director for IDEO, which means part of my job is ensuring that our capabilities across the firm are at their highest, especially in the creative fields. Would include any kind of expression from, you know, our industrial design and graphic design to our business programs, our systems design organization, etc. So the big question I'm always asking is how do we continue to be as creative as we possibly can? How do we discover new methods? How do we attract new talent? That's where my head is. Not an easy question to deal with, but exciting one. Great. You are both obviously collaborated for a few years now, and you are immersed and operate and work with the world of music. And you have a new book, as just Panos mentioned, Two Beats Ahead, What Musical Minds Teach Us About Innovation, in which you interview some of the leading figures in music, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iwin, Beyonce, Pharrell, Justin Timberlake, Bjork, and many, many others. First of all, congratulations. How does it feel to see your book out there in the world? Well, we're both musicians, and we're musicians that grew up in an era where LPs and cassette tapes and CDs were things that you found on uh, bookshelves. So for me, (laughs) it feels the same as if this is like 1987 and I walked into a Tower Records or an HMV and I saw my LP there my record there, it just feels awesome. And uh, at times you have to pinch yourself. Uh, Personally, it's been a lifelong ambition to publish a book and uh, sometimes careful what you wish for. So it's a super exciting time to be able to put this out there and hopefully stimulate a conversation. Yeah, and you, Michael? Yeah, I mean, we weren't gonna 
do this book initially or I wasn't. <laughs> and uh, and I, I pointed some agents to Panos and then Panos said, I'll do it if Michael does it. And so we ended up working together on it, which has been awesome. You know, Panos mentioned that we're both musicians. I, I think anytime I make something and put out in the world, I have these feelings of excitement and fear coexisting. Yeah. And I feel the same way about the book. It's like you get this thing, you've like worked so hard. You're so excited to see it done. And then it's like, oh my gosh, people are going to read this or people are going to listen to this. What's going to happen? So I'm in that mode right now, just waiting to see what kind of response we get. You know, sometimes you just have these thoughts that go through your head and you're like, God, I, you know, I wonder if people could actually read my thoughts, what they think. Maybe they'll think I'm completely insane. <laughs> um, and putting out a book like this is kind of the equivalent of sort of capturing all these thoughts that you've had for years and you're saying, world, here it is. And then you just sit back and wait and see what kind of reaction that you're getting. And hopefully uh, the reaction we get is that we're two rational human beings that ought to be kept uh, outside in society and not put away. But you never know. Oh, positive people would love it. It's exciting uh, topic. I, I can totally relate to the excitement and fear. When I published my book in Japan, I was like, you know, all the time going to the Amazon to see if someone uh, wrote and then with Google Translate trying to understand what's going on over there. I have a fundamental question. Why did you decide to write a book about innovation and music? I mean, I know artists and from what I do, I know that it's undoubtedly a book for everyone, especially for business people. But I'm interested to hear your point of view. Why publishing a book about innovation and music? In many ways, Nir, I feel that there's a few things happening today that created an urgency for us to put this book out. Number one, we're faced with real big, challenging, seemingly intractable. But if you're an optimist, you also believe that there are solvable problems. But they're unlike many that humanity has ever faced before, largely because of this confluence of different forces, not just things like pandemics that have existed for as long as humanity has existed, but also uh, social changes brought about because of technological changes. So you really feel this pressure cooker of, of issues coming up. And we think that there needs to be a different way of approaching them and a different thinking that you need to apply in order to tackle them. The other, for me, is sort of a diminishing urgency around the value of creative education and what this means, not just for people who consider themselves, themselves creatives, but also for the rest of people uh, out there who are creative and they just don't know about it. But what distinguishes us from other species is our creativity, is our ability to imagine and dream things and then kind of sort of make them happen, right? And, and we're seeing the pendulum swung too far towards one side of science, technology, mathematics, engineering, that's fantastic. But there is the C component that's missing, the creativity. And then the third, at least me teaching in a music school or being part of a music, dance and theater school I have experienced firsthand, uh, being a graduate of, of Berkeley, the applicability and transferability of these skills that I learned that I never quite applied as, a, as an ongoing working musician, but I sure as hell applied them as an entrepreneur. And I believe they were key to whatever success that I experienced. And when I went to Berkeley, part of what drove me 
was a desire to show to students that the very instincts that they have, they're not just applicable to them as performers or creators, but they're, they're also applicable to them as humans and as entrepreneurs and as um, actors in society, if you will, and responsible citizens. So these, for me, were the reasons, what I'll say, the urgent reasons that compel us to put this book out there. I think you are spot on with many of the things that uh, you mentioned. So we are going to hear some of those uh, skills and lessons that you discovered on your way, how music and what musicians are doing and how it's relevant for business. And in the summary of the book, you say, and I quote, they don't think like we do. And in the creative process, they don't act like we do. And I'm interested, Michael, how do they think? Why? What makes musicians think different? You know, when we were working on this book, we were really conscious to not make it a book of methods, that it really, we felt needed to be a book of mindsets, a way of seeing the world, a way of processing the world. Um, and so I'm really happy that you pulled that quote out in particular, because I think it does summarize what we're interested in. The mindset of a musician, I think, is very much one of um, curiosity, discovery, a little bit of opportunism. You know, the ability to see an opportunity and take advantage of that moment. And what we try to do in the book is break down some elements of those mindsets into a creative process. So, you know, how you get inspired through listening, how you might experiment with those things you uh, get inspired by, how you might choose to work with somebody else to help manifest those ideas, whether that's a direct collaborator or even a production collaborator how you might build on those ideas and develop them further, what failure looks like or what quote failure looks like. Yeah. We don't actually believe in failure. It's one of the mindsets in the book, etc. So there's actually a quote from Pharrell. If you wouldn't mind, I can read it. Go for it. All right. I love this quote. And I, um, I want to read it because he said it. <laughs> um, he was talking about, in this particular instance, he's talking about all the things he does outside of music. So, you know, he does... He's a creative director for Adidas and there's a lot of other things, but he says, I treat all projects just like I do music. You have a collection of sounds and it's like your own Lego block building system where you just sort of color coordinate. First of all, you have an idea, you have something that you feel like is missing. And from there, you sort of figure out what the schematic is going to be, the blueprint. And then you sort of color code it and build it. And I find that making a chair is not really different from making a song. Yeah. There's a hook. There's legs, there's the seat, there's the verses. The hinges or the screws or the glue is the chord structure. That's the musician's mindset. And that, that really is the glue of the book, being able to help you, the reader, build that perspective to see the world in that way. We spoke about this, the way they think, this mindset. And you also said the creative process, they don't act like we do. Now, I'm positive there are many kind of lessons that we can learn from. And I want to try maybe break the way they work or act. And one of the things that obviously is natural and fundamental to music is the ability to listen. What did you learn about listening, Panos? Well, it took me a long time to learn that. <laughs> <laughs> I always felt that what distinguishes a, a great musician from everyone else is not so much what they say, how they hear and how they listen and what they pick up. And even in the book, we talk about the importance of silence in between the notes. And Miles Davis famously said that it's not the notes, it's really the space between the notes, that's the music. And in my experience as an entrepreneur, this ability to sort of sit back and absorb and truly listen to the environment, to 
what somebody's saying, whether it's your employee, whether it's a prospective partner, is maybe key to being able to address their their respective needs, right? And a musician, in many ways, that's what they're doing. They're listening and they're responding. They're responding to an audience or responding to their environment. And it, they first listen and then express. And I feel that we're at a moment in time right now where there's almost too much broadcasting and not enough listening and not enough receiving. People are too content to put information out there, but not necessarily absorb information first. You know, it's sort of the annoying friend who asks a question and before you answer it, they're off to another question. Or it's clear they never cared about the answer. They just cared about answering, asking the question just because it's a nice thing to do. Like my pet peeve being an immigrant in America is when I first went there, it would be like, so how are you? But they never really cared to hear about how I am <laughs> or that, you know, like it's just, it's a, it's a way of saying hi. And that always annoyed me, right? Like if you're, if you're, I think it goes back to that, right? That musicians are imbued with this beautiful gift of listening. And it's based on that, that they create. And we feel that as humans, we can benefit by paying attention to that and thinking more like a musician, uh, if you will, when it comes to our listening skills. So Michael, do you have a tip how we can develop our listening skills based on music? Yeah, the quote that, that Panos used from Miles Davis, the space between the notes, that's actually a, a great strategy is starting to look for what's not there versus focusing on what is there. So, um, you know, we give an example in the book of um, Iovine and Dr. Dre developing beats, you know, and I won't tell you the story, but like, one of the simple story. insights is the, they just recognize like in a, in, a, in a new era when everybody was wearing earbuds or headphones all the time because of the iPod, nobody was hearing music like they were hearing music in the studio as the artist intended. It was a very simple observation, but that observation led to a series of decisions they made that eventually led to the launch of Beats. And I think that's often the way I've seen that work happen in our innovation work at IDEO. It's... When you're looking for a new opportunity, it's often you're looking for what's not there, not what does exist. So that's why we go to people's homes and do uh, interviews to do observations there. We might we, we do observations in the workplace because we're actually not trying to listen for what's being said. We're trying to listen for what's being unsaid. Um, and what that often looks like is you'll, you'll discover something. You might see a way a person organized their space, and that tells you something about the way they see the world. Or you might see a way a, a person, some habits they have as they go on a commute. And that might reveal something about how they bank, for example. We uh, discovered in one project where a person had chosen a bank outside of their commuting range because it made it harder for them to go withdraw money. <laughs> and that was a budgeting strategy. They would have never told us that. But in starting to understand how they travel and how they make the choices, you can start to understand what isn't there and what isn't there is the most interesting thing. It's very interesting because in painting and drawing, you have what's called the negative space, that instead of drawing the chair itself, you draw the spaces in between the parts of the chairs. It's very interesting to see the similarities in music, the space between the notes. Obviously, uh, I think that one of the prominent characteristics of artists is their natural tendency to experiment. Now, you both work in innovation and you know that experimentation is super, super, super important and it takes a significant role in this uh, space. However, the business world obviously is less embracing these experimentation methods. 
why we can learn from artists or what did you learn about experimentation from all the conversation you had? Well, I think that in many ways we look at failure as people or rejection as an end and we are conditioned in many ways to want to avoid it at all costs. And there is even all these expressions often found in business. Failure is not an option. <laughs> But you realize that in music, even from the very way that you learn music, that failure is not so much an end, but it is truly a means to learning to creating. There is no such thing as creating anything without failing. So you can look at it as if you flip it and you and you see it as a process of getting to an outcome rather than as an end, then you tend to approach this concept of failure and experimentation from a very different angle that you realize that only through this constant desire to try something, fail at it, learn from that failure, get up and do it again and again and again, which maybe if you take this string of actions, you would say that's experimentation. Do you arrive at an outcome? And I'm not even going to say a desired outcome because often you don't even know what you're desiring. It's only when it presents itself yeah. that you're like, that's what it is. I think part of the fun of experimentation and what musicians do is that they don't approach it forcefully, right? They're because they're not trying to attain... A preordained outcome and therefore they don't see it as failure they're just seeing it as trying and then when that outcome is evident they just know it when it appears rather than having tried to preordain it and you see this in music but if you take that approach in your everyday life then you realize that all your failures ultimately lead you to where you are and you tend to look at the the action of so-called experimentation from a, a different standpoint. So, Michael, I have a question for you. You work quite often with companies from all around the world. How a company can, or a business professional can integrate experimentation in their own environment? What they should be aware of? Well, you know, it's, um, as Pons mentioned er earlier, it's a pretty dynamic environment right now, and it has been even pre-pandemic. The expectations for results um, that improve the bottom line have accelerated significantly from say the mid-century last you know last century so you know the way it used to work you which I actually still believe a lot in is a place like Bell Labs would allow scientists to experiment for years without a lot of guidance the results of that were world-changing things like x-rays and microwaves and um, literally world-changing ideas that came about by creating space for people to explore and discover You know, I recognize that not every business can be like Bell Labs and let's let someone explore for five to six years. Although I would argue that places like Google and Apple still do adopt that. But for those of us who aren't multi-billion dollar corporations, <laughs> we have to be on a, a faster cycle. And that's where, actually, I think the ideas that a musician have, which are to make a demo of a song, to go from an idea to something they can share, can apply. So 
when you have intention, you have an idea and you have intention behind it, that's all you're trying to do with a song demo is communicate that intention. It could be as simple as a melody sung without any accompaniment, but it's at least developed enough that someone can hear it and respond to it. And that's what you're trying to do when you're trying to experiment and iterate quickly. Just make something tangible enough for someone else to respond to it so that they can either build upon the idea with you or say something that might inspire you and help you get to the next level. Um, in the book, we write about Charles Eames. I guess if you've bought any furniture from Vitra, you may have bought some Charles and Ray Eames furniture. But, you know, they um, proponents of this idea of iteration, never really seeing failure as an outcome. So even to get those little joints on the bottom of the chair that would hold the hardware to the shell of the chair, they would experiment and, you know, do a hundred different versions of the same thing to try to get it to its outcome. And often songs are developed that same way too, right? Like first you have the melody, then you try some accompaniment, then you try different versions of that. You might bring in a different voice, etc. None of those are failures along the way. They're just trying, they're trying to move us to a point where we experience something new. And I, I think that's another important aspect here. It's like, I think in the business world, there's often, especially in brainstorms, people think if they have an idea, they're done, or if they can have the quote, best idea, they're done. And actually, that's just the starting point most of the time. And recognizing that it's not enough to have an idea. What's important is to make that idea tangible, and let other people respond to it and work with it to take it to its next level and then its next and next. It's actually the only way new ideas get into the world. Otherwise, they're just you know notes on paper or conversations. And that doesn't actually make it any difference in the business world. You know, you're talking and I'm asking myself if it's not the artist that invented the lean startup and not the startup that invented the lean startup. You know, it's yeah. like, uh, <laughs> great. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Hi, listeners. It's clear that our speakers are at the intersection of art and innovation, but they didn't just arrive there casually. They developed their skills, gained knowledge, and more importantly, grew their artistic mindset Would you like to develop some of these skills, capabilities, or a growth mindset? Then I would encourage you to check our art-based learning experiences. Whether you want to build your leadership skills or your innovation competencies, our training can be just what you are looking for. Visit us at www.theartian.com. That is T-H-E-A-R-T-I-A-N.com to learn more. We are back with the, uh, Michael and Panos, and we were just talking about experimentation. And one of the things I think that Michael and Panos were fortunate, not only on what they are doing, is that they got to speak with some of the most amazing, I think, living artists today. And I'm interested to hear what you learned. We were interviewing Imogen Heap about uh, her, one of her breakthrough songs, or actually her breakthrough song. And uh, what was interesting is she tells a story about she had been working on a new record for roughly over a month. And she had it for some reason, she hadn't saved anything she had been recording <laughs> and her hard drive crashed and um, she lost everything in an evening. And she thought to herself, well, rather than just like letting this be the end of my day, I'm going to do something else today. So she grabbed a piece of gear off the shelf that one of her friends had loaned her. And it was basically a vocoder. And she started to sing along with that vocoder. And uh, within an hour had a, a rough melody and a new idea for how that song should sound. And uh, what was interesting about it, it was um, a complete experiment, right? It was just an emotional response to a bad situation. But her willingness to not wallow in that, in that moment, but to actually just pick up something new and try it, took her in a new direction that actually opened up all kinds of new doors for her. And we've seen this 
pretty regularly. I mean, context can be everything for success in this when you're experimenting. Like Radiohead, we were really curious to find out like how they would develop songs over time, you know. And one thing that happened for them, unfortunately, is they had one of some of their files stolen a couple of years ago during the、um, anniversary of OK Computer. But there were 18 hours of demos and live recordings from、oh、those sessions、God. that were released. And one thing that was evident from that is they they had so many rich ideas that they didn't try to use them all at one time. The context for when those ideas felt relevant changed. So ideas they had in 1995, some of them made onto a OK Computer in 1997, but some weren't released. Or further developed into 2001 on Kid A, or in 2010 on In Rainbows, or even in 2016 on A Moonshaped Pool. So one song was 21 years old.、Um, True Love Waits. They wrote it in 1995. The context just wasn't right, and I think that's another important part about experimentation that we have to remember is that all these ideas we try or ideas we have, the post-its on the wall that you don't use, they're actually worth saving. They're worth remembering. I had a client once. That just kept a notebook of all of his ideas, and he would go back ten, fifteen years and read them again to see if they made any sense today.、Amazing. They didn't make any sense at the time. You know, maybe they were like too far ahead technologically. Maybe the company at the time wasn't set up to achieve what he was looking for. But he could look at it now and see, oh, this makes perfect sense in this moment with the market conditions. The same, exactly the same idea of Radiohead holding us on for twenty-one years. I often think we throw away lots of good ideas because we don't understand their relevance in that moment. But we have to believe that they will be relevant someday, or they can be relevant someday, and that can be the key to having great ideas consistently down the road. Yeah, so interesting. It's like suddenly I think about experimentation is building your own creative database that you can always go back and pull. Yeah, you know, in the book we have this、um, part where I'm inter- interviewing Justin Timberlake at at Berkeley. And I think it encapsulates everything that we're we're talking about in one phrase that he used, and he says, "I've I've learned," or he says, "Dare to suck." That's the big advice that I have. And I remember when he said it, I thought, "What a cool way of capturing this concept." It takes bravery to experiment and to put and yourself out there, t- and put yourself out there. He says something in the book. Along the lines, and I'm reading this here. I don't want to do the same thing twice. I want to continue and learn and be creative. Sometimes I can be impossible with myself, but that's okay too. But I'm still making things, and I don't move until I see it, until it all starts to make sense. This is for me sort of the、um, the whole idea behind experimenting. That it takes bravery to do it, but it also takes faith that it will lead you. To an outcome that, as we were talking about earlier, is not necessarily preordained, but when you see it, as Justin says, it just makes sense. But until you, it, you get to that point, you just have to keep trying and trying. And you know, in business, we never budget for failure; we only budget for success <laughs> in so many ways, right? Yeah. But even in the most truest way, when an artist books studio time, they actually budget for a lot of failure. Interesting. They don't expect they're going to go and cut the song from start to finish, and that's it. As a matter of fact, a studio is a place where you can't experiment 
And you can fail because it's often in that failure that you discover cool things, which is, by the way, the reason why so many artists have home studios, because they know that sometimes that moment of inspiration just comes at any time. But in business, we're not, we don't approach it that way. Our offices are not places where you can always easily experiment. We're afraid of failure. When you hire people, you hire them to be successful. You don't hire them to fail. When you put your projections for the year, it's usually your best projections. And failure is not necessarily ingrained in the PNL. What if it were? So that's where I think we're talking about. Make space for failure. I think maybe there is a need for shifting conversation to remove the word failure in just use different words and kind of don't look at that at all as a failure, but rather kind of research path, experimentation space, whatever. I have another kind of question to ask you because one of the things that I encounter is that the perception, at least in visual art, okay, of the solo artist. Obviously in music, especially in music, I think it requires a lot of collaboration. It's not one person that creates from the beginning all the way till the end everything. And I'm interested to hear what are the lessons that you had from all the conversations about collaboration, artistic collaboration, creative collaboration, business collaboration, maybe in the music world. I think a, a through line in what we learned about collaboration is this idea of pursuing excellence in others. If you've um, not read Miles Davis's autobiography, I really recommend it. It's uh, very colorful. He's a straightforward communicator. But also it's really clear, like his pursuit of uh, Dizzy Gillespie from when he was 18, ultimately led to him being able to perform with him. And then many would argue outshine him. Um, you know, Beyonce is very good at this too. She's very good at choosing her collaborators because of who they are, not just because of what they can do. And it's, it's this idea of mutual respect of pursuing somebody that has mastered something else and then wanting to collaborate with them. I think it's often missed in collaboration. I mean, I've had, I've done talks about collaboration and had people in the audience come up to me afterwards and they'll say like, Something like, yeah, but what if everybody you work with is horrible? Or what if everybody, <laughs> or you don't like them or, you know, whatever that condition is. And there's a, val this is a validity in that question. Like learning to surround yourself or build a network that has people in it that you admire is actually the first stage to true success in collaboration. There's a, a cool quote that T-Bone Burnett, the famous producer, gave to us that we, we talked about in the book that, again, I think encapsulates the way that a musician approaches collaboration. And he said something along the lines of, I don't care what anybody plays, I just care who's playing it. And there's just a trust that if you bring the right people together, something interesting will emerge. And again, it's not preordained. You don't force it. And I think that in business, we like to force outcomes. And often, interesting things happen when you just sort of sit back and watch. Watch what happens when you bring interesting people together. What if you hired the way that musicians choose collaborators, like where it's often not necessarily based on what they do or who they are, but ultimately, it's a belief of an additive element that they can bring to the process of creation. And I think that, again, in business, we tend to hire people based on roles. And we say, well, we need to hire a salesperson. We need to hire a, uh, an engineer, a finance person. That's fine. But 
Michael and I have been successful partners, not because we thought about in a spreadsheet what each other brings to the table or our backgrounds or our resumes, but we just had an intuitive understanding uh, and connection with each other that we sort of trusted what the outcome could be of this collaboration. And that expressed itself in a book, in a class, in an institute, in so many different forms. But we've never sort of set out to accomplish any of this stuff. It's just that our our natural partnership and I would say musician instincts led us to believe that something cool could arise. And that's how musicians collaborate. What if we brought that element in another sphere, in a social sphere, in a business sphere, in a governance sphere? You know, it trust is the key element to collaboration in music. But unfortunately, we live in a, in a post-trust world. Yeah. How can we recapture that? So I want to play a, maybe a devil advocate over here and say, maybe musicians have the ability to choose who they want to work. I'm just an employee in a company. I don't choose who I can work with. What is the advice you give to those people? How they can build meaningful collaborations inside a given situation? Yeah, I think Panos hit the nail on the head when he started talking about collaboration outside of roles. So where I see a lot of creativity and collaboration within organizations break down is when they're siloed by department because this department is working on this project, this department is working on this project, and then here's another one working on another. Oftentimes in an unhealthy organization, you'll actually see people keeping their progress separate from one another because they're, they feel like they have to quote own it to show their success. But most successful organizations have figured out that collaborating across those silos, not only across the silos, but being inclusive across those silos, meaning that good ideas can come from anyone in, the, in a department. It's not like the boss has to have the good idea or even the quote expert in the field, which often happens, has to have the good idea. They can come from anyone. And that comes from looking at the characteristics of people's personalities, um, their interests, their willingness to participate and contribute their generosity of ideas. Those aren't things that a role defines. Or oh, appears in CV. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's where you have to be creative in your situation. If you don't like the team you've been assigned, I think you can make a strong case to build a different kind of team. Actually, I wrote about this in 2010, believe it or not. In a, there's a business school in Toronto called Rotman and they have a, a business journal. And I wrote with uh, Jane Fulton Surya, we talked about identifying the sensibilities in people you work with, because often those sensibilities reveal more about how they can contribute to new ideas. So for example, if you work with somebody and you just think one day, you know, they always throw great dinner parties at their house. Like, I don't know how they do it. Like they invite good conversation with the guests. They have, they somehow the, the theme of the food always matches what we're talking about. And it turns out this person is uh, in a role that maybe they're in a reception role and normally would be overlooked uh, for, as an idea contributor. No one likes to live defined by the roles. And they often, if given the chance, will rise to the occasion creatively. And I think that's part of our job. If we're leaders in our role in our companies or um, whatever sphere we have, our job is to be looking for the, those characteristics and people around us and helping them participate with us because we admire what they can do. Yeah, I see it quite often, especially among the young generation, that they are the ones that try to break these silos and studying engineering and art or participating in a biology a major and an art minor, kind of trying to mix different disciplines. I want to ask you two questions, and I want to hear from both of you. Again, you spoke with leading creative minds, and I'm interested to ask you, first of all, 
What is the most important revelation you have discovered from this process of writing this book from those artists? That what I thought was just the way that I was able to sort of perceive my musicality, if you will, as something that was liberating and applicable in so many other ways, that that was something that existed among all the people that I talked to, also that it had an intuitive and, and resonant connection to people. And, you know, often in life, you have hypotheses, right? But you express them and they just don't really resonate with anybody. It was fascinating for me to talk with so many musicians and so many creators and begin to realize, okay, what I'm thinking, what I'm sensing, what I've suspected is beyond that. It's, in fact, something that we all commonly share. And there's something beautiful about realizing that, especially talking with so many people and so many musicians in this process, some of whom are world-renowned, like Pharrell and Justin Timberlake and uh, a and, and number of others, and some of them are up-and-comers. But you realize that irrespective of who these people are, they all have this connection, and that both their connection to creativity and to music, as well as the way that they emote and relate to the world, there is a, a commonality and a community almost around it. So it was beautiful for me to kind of observe almost a warm glow from talking to these people because you realize that we share this bond as creative beings. But then taking that and expressing it to others and seeing how they intuitively resonated with this idea, because I, I do believe that music is within all of us and we intuitively resonate with it, that immediately this message just hit home for everybody. That to me was the biggest revelation. Great. And Michael, what was your biggest revelation from this process of writing the book? We uh, wrote a chapter about producing. I was surprised by how relevant it was to my role as a creative leader in a design innovation company. So one of the interviews that really stood out to me was with Hank Shockley, who is a, a member of quote, the Bomb Squad, founding member of Public Enemy, record executive, marketing executive. He had this philosophy that he shared with us that I just haven't been able to get out of my head ever since he said it. I've used it over and over again. And he started with a metaphor. He said, what we know about the known universe is that it's 3% matter and it's 97% something else. Call it dark matter. We don't know what it is. You can't see it. But we know it's there because we do the math, right? Um, he said, when he works with an artist, he uses that mental model. And he sees the artist as the 3%. And he sees everything else around the artist as the 97%. And he said, my job as a producer is to manage the 97%, not the 3%. And that has really stuck with me. Um, it reminded me of another musician, uh, Brian Eno, who... I have his cards over here. You know, the cards that he did in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, Oblique Strategies. I have it over yeah. here. <laughs> so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I use his cards also when I get stuck. So there's a card that says gardening, not architecture. And I've always interpreted it in this way, too. Your job is not to control the building of the thing you're trying to create. Your job is to create the conditions for growth. That's why I've always interpreted that phrase, gardening, not architecture. And I think Hank Shockley is saying the same thing. It's the conditions around creativity. It's the conditions around people that actually determine whether they are successful or not. And as a creative leader, as any kind of leader, that's your job. Your job isn't to micromanage 
what that individual does. Your job isn't to get them to execute upon your idea, which I see a lot of that happen. Your job is to make them as successful as you can by putting the people around them, the frameworks around them, the conditions around their workplace to be successful um, and to be the most creative people they can be. That has so resonated with me and that has become my driving philosophy in the way I work. Great. So I think in a way, Michael, you already answered my second question. Who is the person that surprised you the most from the book that you uh, interviewed? And I'm interested to ask you this question, Panos. Who was the, the artist, producer, musician that maybe surprised you the most in this process? Oh, gee. Uh, that's <laughs> like a- asking which is my favorite child. Because they were all surprising in their own way. They all said something that made you sort of go... Whoa, okay, I didn't expect that. Um, I'd say Hank Shockley, perhaps, was both inspiring and surprising. So much of what he said captured almost the entire premise of the book, right? So with some of the other people that we spoke to, they sort of, it was, it, it's funny, like in your head, you kind of could see where they fit in the book that we're working on. But in talking with Hank, almost from start to finish of what ended up being, I think, a two and a half hour discussion. It was a long time. It was fun. I mean, we couldn't stop uh, uh, talking. And it was almost like Hank was the embodiment of everything that we were trying to say in the book, but in one person. So to me, that was perhaps maybe the most fun and surprising interview we, we, we had. Guys, I, I have so many questions, more to ask you, but we are running out of time. Any last thoughts, message you want to share with our listeners? I hope that if you do read the book. <laughs> when? I hope you do read when, the book. <laughs> when you read the book. <laughs> when you read the book. Thank you. Thank you, Nir. Um, that you come out of it feeling encouraged. That, that was one of my hopes for why we got into writing this book in the first place. I believe that... Most people don't give themselves the chance to truly find their creative potential. They've, and the people holding them back are themselves. <laughs> they've told themselves over and over again that they're not creative, or they've told themselves that their life is somehow compartmentalized, that the thing they do at home doesn't apply to what they do at work. And what I want everyone to go away thinking is that's not true. And in fact, you know, in this era when we talk about fluidity, And we talk about intersectionality and we talk about the flexibility and agility and so many. Yeah. Apply it to yourself. <laughs> apply it to yourself. That's the secret. Great. Panos, your last message, at least for this podcast. Well, for me, I'll use something from my meditation. And it's this idea of the blue sky, right? That no matter what. No matter how gray the day is and rainy and cold, when we started this podcast with a gray, rainy, cold day in Boston, maybe we're finishing it with one. No matter what the weather is like in Boston, I always know what the weather in Cyprus is like where I am right now, which is <laughs> blue, sunny skies, right? But that blue, sunny sky is everywhere. It's just obscured by clouds. And I think the same thing about creativity. We're all creative. It's just that... Years of learning to behave in a certain way and years of adding have created all this stuff on top of our creativity that covers it. So it's not so much about creating your creativity, if you will, or forcing it. It's just 
removing all the stuff that's covering it. And to Michael's point, create the conditions for it to spring up. It's always there. It's just that it's covered, just like the blue sky is always there and it's just covered. And this is what I've discovered through the journey of writing this book, that everybody is creative. It's just that the people that we call creative, like the musicians in the book, they just find ways to keep their creativity uh, vulnerable and uncovered. And the rest of us, we build these shells that is part self-protection, but at the same time, it's, it's covering our own creativity. So my parting message is be vulnerable. Learn to be okay with putting yourself out there. It's the only way, if you ask me, to exist and to feel alive. Great. So exciting to have this conversation. Two Beats Ahead, What Musical Minds Teach Us About Innovation is available on Amazon and leading uh, bookshops. Check it out. Links uh, will be on our website as well. Panos, Michael, thank you very, very, very much. Best of luck uh, with the book. And first of all, at least from me, thank you for putting art and music on the map on the business innovation uh, world. Thank you guys very, very much. Thank you. Thank you, Nira. I encourage you to check Michael and Pano's book for the simple reason that if you are looking to develop out-of-the-box thinking, if you are looking for a different perspective, that can be a great start. Next time you listen to a song or a music piece, remember, most likely, it is the result of experimentation, of failure, or collaboration. And one last thing, if there is one piece of advice I take from this podcast, is the following. Listen more. And until you come back again, I will be here waiting for you with another episode of the Artian Podcast. Once again, thanks for listening. Thanks again for choosing us, listening to us, and staying with us. Till now, we know that with so many content out there, you chose to listen to this one. So thank you for that. We are producing our podcast without any help. So if you find this valuable for you, I will be super grateful if you can help us spread the word by leaving a rating or a review. It will take you less than a minute and it's really, really valuable for us. Special thanks to Daniel Duran who mixed and mastered this episode and Abigail Dyson, our wonderful intern, who helped us put this podcast out there. If you are interested in working with us and upskilling your team's capabilities, if you are looking to hone and develop an artistic mindset, then I would recommend you to check our workshops and training. All the information is available on our website. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Our previous shows are available on our website, www.theartian.com slash podcast. Each episode includes show notes, guest recommendations, videos, and other materials. We can also be found on our LinkedIn page, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And you can reach us directly via email at podcast at theartian.com. Once again, thanks for listening. I will be here waiting for you on another episode of the Artian Podcast. Podcast.